be turning to the book of Job this evening, looking uh, down to Job number 2, chapter 2. Think for a moment with me. You are familiar with the book of Job yourself, and you have read through it, you you appreciate the tremendous language that is there, the incredible tension that is there. Think about all the different issues that are derived from the book of Job. Think about, of course, the idea of suffering, the issue of suffering. Think about the tremendous teaching about the sovereignty of God and the absolute power and control of God. Also from the book of Job, there is um, some insight into the work of Satan. And there's even communication between uh, our Father and, um, and Satan. And of course, with Satan, there is the issue of sin and, and temptation. In the book of Job, there is, of course, again and again, we are introduced to the character of Job and... Uh, some things about his, his family, his marriage. So many tremendous thoughts come out of Job. The one I want to focus on together uh, this evening is friendship. Job had some friends to come and visit. And I'd like for us to take Job and learn some things about friendship. And I believe that you'll see uh, easily the direction in which we'll be going here in just a moment. But as we get into our study here, I want you to think just for a moment about some of the best friends, most meaningful friends you've ever had in your life and why that is the case. And then think about some folks that have made it easy for you to be a good friend uh, to them. And think for a moment why uh, the Lord Jesus is the best friend anyone uh, could ever have. So let's get our thoughts headed in, in this direction. And as we do, let's read Job number 2, chapter 2. And the last few verses here, verses 11 uh, through 13. This will get us started. Think about for a moment, see if you can remember the names of Job's friends that come and visit him after the tragedies that come upon his life. How many friends were there that come and vi to visit Job? Hmm? Three. Anybody want to say more than three? Three hmm? are names. Chapter two. We have later on the of Okay. So three friends mentioned here in chapter 2, and then there's a fourth one mentioned over, I think it begins in chapter 32, and he has several chapters, Elihu. So the friends' names, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, and then the fourth one would be Elihu. And so 
Uh, let's begin here. Job chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite. They made an appointment together to come and to show sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word uh, to him, for they saw his suffering was very great. Okay. So what I'd like to do is to notice first what Job's friends did right. And then secondly, I want to notice what Job's friends got wrong. And hopefully that will uh, be able um, to kind of spring into more of a, a, a discussion among us uh, this evening. Okay. But right here in chapter 2, we can easily see that Job's friends got some things right. Uh, first of all, notice they, they came um, as friends of support. They came to support uh, Job. Notice particularly the words here um, when verse 11, the three friends heard of all of this that had come upon Job, and then they came. Those are, those are powerful words, though. They heard, and then they came. That's what a friend does. So they came in support. All right. Now, this implies uh, several things. Number one, it implies that they had stayed in contact uh, with their friend Job. They had stayed in contact with each other. How often it happens that, that real good, godly Christian friends lose contact with each other. Not, not by any um, means on purpose. Like we don't get up and say, well, I'm going to just lose contact with this person. But it just happens. So it takes effort uh, to stay in contact. Uh, with good godly friends and, um, and then be ready to administer uh, help in their time of need. So first of all, this support they showed implied that they had stayed in contact or they would have never heard of his calamities uh, in the first place. And then it also, um, it implies that they coordinated together here. In fact, it actually says that, don't it? Verse 11. It says, they made an appointment together to come and to, um, to, come and, and to show their support uh, to him. Okay. Anna, you might go check. Two, two just walked down the hall that might um, want to be in class. Okay. Um, but notice they coordinated uh, together. That also takes effort. Friends, when they hear other friends being in need, um, they, they must coordinate together. They're going to try to show a proper support, especially in a situation uh, like this. And then, another thing they do here, um, they take the, the time and the trouble and the expense that it takes to, to make the trip. They, they don't live just right there next to Joe. And so they, they uh, go to the trouble of both time and expense to make the trip. And this is, this is very good friendship being shown by 
Eliphaz and Bildad and, and Zophar. And then they were willing uh, also to interrupt their own lives uh, to come and to show sympathy and support and comfort uh, to Job. So this thing about the support that they did, it was right for them to show this type of support uh, to their friend. Let's think about some passages that, that might go along with this type of, um, of support. Turn over in your, in your Bibles, and we'll flip back here, but turn over to 1 Corinthians for just a minute. Chapter 10, 1 Corinthians 10. Notice a couple of statements here. First in chapter 10 and then chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 24. 1 Corinthians 10 and 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Certainly Joe's friends were... were um, doing this type of thing, at least at this time of their life. Look at 1 Corinthians 13 and uh, verse 4 and 5 where it talks about love. Uh, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Okay. So notice that uh, love does not insist on its own way. They don't just continue in their lives as they have been doing. What had happened to Job stopped their life. It, it, it stopped them in their tracks. And so they made the effort uh, to come. So think about that uh, as we think. And turn over also while we're in this area. Turn to Philippians uh, 2 for just a moment. Philippians 2. And notice a related passage uh, here. Yes. Go ahead and read that for us, Ken. Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Okay, you can see really well how that fits, uh, this description of Job's friends uh, on this occasion. Now, as we head back to Job, stop, stop in there in your Bibles to Proverbs uh, chapter 17 for a second. Proverbs 17. Someone read for us um, verse 17. 17, 17. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Okay. What do you think that means? A, a brother is born for adversity. Um, yeah, if you're a friend, then it's just natural. You're, uh, it's, it's, I guess for our day, we could say if we are born into the family of God, then we are born for this kind of thing. If we, if we can possibly be of, of comfort, support, and assistance, we, it's just going to be second nature for us uh, to try to help. While we're in that area, look at Proverbs 18 and verse uh, 24. 18.24 A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And there are those kinds of friends in life. And so these men were showing support. Showing support. Another thing I think as we go back to Job 2 here, um, 
that what they did right here is that they they show sympathy and and the word also uh, solidarity. They're, they're not just coming, but let's notice their actions here, beginning in um, verses twelve and thirteen. Notice. Going back to Job 2, verse 12, they saw him from a distance. They didn't just hear about his calamity, um, but they saw it for themselves. Now, we, always, we can't always be there in person with someone um, that we know is going through a tough time, but, but to their credit, they came. And notice it says they didn't even recognize him. I wonder why that is. Grief can really change someone's appearance. What else had happened to Job? Yeah, his body was afflicted with sores. He was constantly scraping his skin, and it was just piling up around him. And so he he was some more disfigured person by the time they were able to make it uh, to the scene. So they came and they saw him, and they didn't even recognized him. And then notice it says they raised their voices and wept. They raised their voices and wept. So I think you can see that his friends were were very sincere in coming. They they had him, not themselves, had they had him on their minds and then when they got there it just broke their heart. So they raised their voices and wept. And what was the next thing they did? Do what? Yeah, they tore the robes and then what? And put dust on their head. In ancient times, of course, that was a tremendous sign of of grief. Tearing your clothes, putting. sackcloth and ashes on sometimes, but definitely this is a real sign of grief. And they sat down with him on the ground. Now, remember, Job was a very rich man. So somewhere in the, in the area there is something like a big house, a mansion, where he usually would live with his servants there. But that's not where Job was. Job was outside on the ground. And these friends came and sat down on the ground with him. I believe this is a tremendous show of, of uh, sympathy uh, with him. Solidarity, we might say. So in this regard, uh, think about a couple of passages. Um, Romans twelve fifteen. you know this passage. Rejoice with those that rejoice, and what else does it say? And weep with those that weep. Rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. We know that there was a scene in Jesus' life when Lazarus died. And when Jesus got there, John 11, there were many others there weeping along with Mary and Martha and there um, spending time with them. Of course, Jesus himself comes and weeps, according to John 11 and 35. And in the big scheme of things, this is what Jesus did for us by leaving heaven and coming to take on flesh. Has there ever been such a show of, of uh, solidarity and sympathy uh, as did Jesus 
John 1, 14. He came and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among men. He tabernacled here among us. He became as one of us. And not only was he here, but he showed a lot of sympathy for us. Isaiah 53 prophesies that he would be a man of grief. Right? A man of grief. And acquainted with sorrow. So Jesus himself became us. A great show of of love uh, our way. So these men did uh, some very fine things here. They, They did some things that were right. And then, uh, I would say, the, the big third thing they did that was right was respect. Why do you think that, that we use the word respect here as you read in Job 2? How do you see respect being given by Job's friends here? They didn't speak. Yes, they, they just sat there. They, they, evidently, they had... Um, Discussed among themselves, we, we simply will let Job speak first. And that, that says a lot about how to help another in grief. It is, uh, sympathy, sympathy is not really about words, is it? It's really not about words. It's more about presence, being there. And it's about trying to, to feel what the other is feeling, even though it may not be possible to feel exactly because grief is different for everybody, but they were showing sympathy and, and respect. And respect. And uh, I think it's a great deal of respect here. So they sat there for how long? Seven days. Can you, can you even begin to imagine this? Seven days and nights. Job was wealthy. It's, it's likely, since these fellows were able to travel, um, they, they had some means about them. Here, here you've got grown men out somewhere in a field, and they're all just sitting down, sitting down, on the dirt, on the ground. And um, it's, a, it's a great show. I, I started remembering some times and some first times in my life where actual grief came to our family. I remember uh, back in 1976, we lost two family members. My uncle, uh, J.W., had an accident at work. And then uh, my grandfather, my my dad's dad, he died. He died when I was in the um, third grade, third or fifth grade. But I remember I had two mamas. I had Mama Barker and Mama Cooper. And we went to Mama Barker's house a lot. She lived right up the hill. Mama Cooper, my mother's mother, she lived across town. We went to her house uh, quite a bit. But I had never seen Mama Cooper and Mama Barker in the same house. But when my grandfather died, and I got home from school, and there was a lot of people at Grandma's house, I go up to Grandma's house, and my Mama Cooper is in the kitchen of Mama Barker. I'd never seen that. And I thought, what is she doing here? She not, that's not her house, not her kitchen. You know. But it soon, you know, you soon learn that there they are because of the grief process. And so perhaps you have some memories uh, like that. I know 
Uh, when we were working in West Tennessee, um, one of our uh, deacons died suddenly. He was only 42 years old, and he had an aneurysm. And he had two teenage girls, one was at Creed Hardman, one was about 15. And um, the uh, family actually didn't have close family. The closest family, the wife, uh, mother, uh, she had a brother in Missouri, and they eventually made arrangements to come, but they couldn't stay. But there was a young couple in the church where we were working there in Jackson that um, they, just, they didn't have kids yet, and they moved in with uh, the mom and the teenage daughter that was there, simply because uh, mom was having a hard time sleeping at night, and there were not a lot of other family members around, so they actually moved in with them. And this is the kind of thing that you expect from godly people because um, of examples like this in Scripture and example of our Lord Jesus as well. And so these are some things that Job's friends did right. We want to move uh, to the next part this evening about some things that got wrong. But before we do that, uh, you want to comment further on, on this section here in Job 2 when they come to visit. Uh, Job, any any other thoughts come to your mind? I'll say that I think that's sitting there quietly with a sign of respect. Many times we'll say, well, I wouldn't know what to say. This is a good example. You don't have to say anything. You just be there for them. Hmm. They'll let you know when they're ready to talk. Okay. We, we sometimes even will talk ourselves even about going and visiting someone because we say we don't know what to say. Aaron's saying this is a great example of, of showing that you don't have to say anything. That a lot of times the one you're going to see will, will let you know when it's time to, to speak. And this was the case here with uh, Job and Job's friends. The presence, uh, Brother Maynard used to speak all the time about the ministry of presence. He was, uh, the ministry of your presence, just being there, and letting people know that I'm here, and uh, I'm here for you, whatever you might uh, need. That is tremendous. Uh, he was, uh, Brother Maynard served for years in the state of Minnesota as a chaplain uh, for the police department, and part of his training was to learn how to respond to uh, tr accidents and tragedy. Okay. Any other thoughts along these lines? Now let's be turning over to Job 42. All the way over to Job 42 together. This is sort of the end of the story, but it's necessary because after God um, has spoken rather firmly to Job, Job responds to what God says. Then notice verse 7, Job 42, 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, this is the ringleader of the three friends, the Temanite, he says, my anger burns against you, you and your two friends. 
For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Okay. Now Elihu, starting in chapter 32, he's not included in God's anger here. He spoke more rationally, more scripturally, than the other friends did. Now, what is it that these friends got wrong that would cause God to say, my anger burns against you? So turn your Bibles to chapter 4. We'll just notice a couple of examples here. Uh, Job 4, beginning in verse 7. This is Eliphaz. Um, he says, Remember, Job, who that was innocent, who ever perished, um, where were the upright ever cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. And by the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. Eliphaz is speaking for the others, but basically he's saying, Job, this would not be upon you except that you have some sin in your life. They come with this theology, this thought that Righteousness equals prosperity, and suffering means sin. Okay. And if we had time, I could, we could go over example after example, not just from Eliphaz, but also from the tongue of Bildad in chapter 8, and the tongue of Zophar in chapter 11. In fact, there are three cycles of speeches where these friends will, will speak, and Joe will respond, and, and then that just continues for a while until you get down to... Uh, Elihu, chapter 32, and then God takes over in chapter 38, and then Job responds here in chapter uh, 42. Job has several speeches himself in the cycles of speeches, but his final response is found in, in chapter 42. But what do you think about that, and is that particular thought also still in people's minds today? Do you hear it? That prosperity equals righteousness and that, that sin equals suffering and vice versa. And how would you go about responding uh, to that? This is your time. It's about 7.35. We've got about 10 minutes left. And so I have rambled in the midst of Job's experiences. Now, you are welcome to ramble. But this is the idea, is um, they, they come, and I've heard this. I've heard this. I can tell you um, a specific example. I preached in, in Bear Creek for a while, and um, we moved here in 2001, February of 2002. One of the young people in Bear Creek uh, died suddenly of a, a, a very mysterious disease. They don't know now. I don't think they ever knew why he died. But he was a he was college age, and um, uh, so we went, of course. And one of the older members there, as as we got ready for the funeral uh, that week, he came up to me. He said, "Well, I've been trying to tell people this family has not been right with God." been trying to tell people for many years 
this family who had suffered the loss of the son, this older man came up to me and he said, he said, I've been trying to explain that people, these people weren't right. And um, so, uh, Vant, even seasoned Christians get that wrong. They, they just assume that if you're going through a tragedy, then you must have done something to bring this on. Ken's saying that as Christians we will suffer and um, we are to rejoice in that if we are suffering. Our our rewards in the next life, not necessarily now, but the next life. Good point. point. So in that funeral at Bear Creek, you know, Vance Hutton and I were doing that one together and so I went up to Vance. I said, did you hear what brother and brother so-and-so said? He said, I heard it. And he said, I'm ready. And so Vance, um, pardon the saying, but Vance pretty much nailed him to the wall during the funeral sermon. Because he brought out several things where his, his attitude was not right at all. And um, so it still is around. And, this, and, and, and um, what, do you, what do we say about that? What can we say? What are some Bible verses, perhaps, that we could be ready to uh, share if someone um, has this ideal and, and we have an opportunity to help? Good point, uh, Tammy, that, that even in chapter 2 here, you know, Job's wife was not a great help here. Of course, she was grieving as well. Can't forget that. But, she, uh, but he said to her, Job did, shall we receive good from the hand of the Lord and not evil? Job, Job understood from the very outset that this, as Aaron was saying, this is not the life where we have the reward of heaven. This is the life where sin is, and we must uh, realize that they're going to be good and bad in life. Good, good point there in Job 2. Andrew's bringing up the very example of Jesus. Jesus is known as a suffering servant. From Isaiah 52 and 53 for sure. He came and suffered, but Jesus didn't have sin. He, he took on the suffering for us. So that The ideal is flawed from the very standpoint of our Lord, certainly. Good. What about in the life of Jesus? Can you think of a couple episodes where this issue came up? Right. Let's look over to John 9. John chapter 9. Right quick. Notice uh, beginning verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asking, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he 
was born blind. There is the theology, there's the concept, the false concept showing up in their mind. Jesus answered and said, It was not this man that sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's not a bad answer right there. That, that sums it up pretty well. And we don't know how, in all our situations, where the work of God can be seen, but certainly it can be seen if people keep the priorities and their ideals and keep grounded in the faith, then eventually God will work out good even when we or someone uh, close to us is suffering. So I would mark that verse for sure. I, I love the way Jesus, he said, it's not this man sent that sent nor his parent, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works for him that sent me while it's day, the night comes when no man can work. Even when there are tough times, it is not time to suspend the will of God. It's not time to stop the word of God. In fact, Jesus is almost saying it it is time to get even more busy uh, in in that regard. Look also back to Luke 13. Luke 13 before our time uh, runs out. Luke 13. Again, beginning in verse uh, 1. There were some present at that very time who told him, told Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Pilate was quite cruel. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Jesus asked this. He said, No, I tell you, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And then Jesus also, in verse 4, he says, Those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed, uh, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? He says, Nay, I tell you all, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And what do you think about how Jesus responds to this? He basically raises the issue and then responds to the issue. What do you think about his response here? It's, it's somewhat similar to John 9 because he says, we must work the works of him that sent me while it's day. In other words, no matter what it is we're focused on, whatever it is that's happening, we can't forget the will of God. It's almost as if he doesn't answer the question, he just drives you back to what we ought to be focused on, which is repenting of sin and doing his will. Yeah. Yeah, that would be another good thought in there. Death is coming to all of us and we must we must be ready. Most definitely. So, right. Other thoughts about what Jesus says here in Luke uh, 13 or John 9. Let me ask you this. Does, does God ever bring up Job's suffering to Job? We might study this another night, but when, when you look at God's words in, in, to Job in Job 38, 39, 40, and 41, it's all about the power and control of God and, and the 
very much weakness and limitation of Job and all mankind. God really never comes to Job and talks to him personally about his suffering, but rather he focuses his attention on the higher ideals of God, the, the tremendous power of God. It's almost like Jesus is doing the same thing here in John 9 and Luke 13. He's, he's raising your um, mind, raising our minds off of what common people would want to discuss and saying, look, there's something much more important going on here than just the suffering of people. It's not that you don't want to reach out. Certainly, Jesus teaches to teaches and shows to reach out to those who are hurting. But in order to uh, point them to the heavenly ways. So, all right. so this is our aim tonight, was to look and see what Job's friends did right and what Job's friends got wrong. It is God whose anger burned against them. How do you explain God's anger while, we, while we're drawing our lesson to a close? How is God's anger different than man's anger? His, his is perfectly just. Okay. What else would you say about it? His anger is righteous, not based on emotions. We, we respond with emotion and disappointment. God is not able to do that. God is perfect in his character. All points of his character, he's perfect. But when he responds with disappointment, it is the perfect attitude that needs to be brought about because God is not only compassionate, but he's just. Does the Bible teach that God is slow to anger? It does. One reference would be Exodus 34:18, and you can look up a lot of others, but Exodus 34:18 would be one. Okay, so if God is slow to anger, what does that tell us when the Bible says He's angry? Yeah. Take notice. Take notice. Yeah. Right. The whole. Ken is saying the whole Bible is basically God showing his patience again and again and again. But then when, when, God, when God's anger is displayed, then that means you better take notice. It's like when Mama says no for the third time. You better watch out. I know what you mean by that. Yeah. So um, it's important. So it's important for us to think about this anger is displayed toward these three friends because they had an opportunity to talk to Job in a righteous way and they messed up. They messed up. The coming was great. Their compassion was wonderful. But we have to have our theology right. We have to have our, our teaching right. Okay. It would have been better for them to remain in silence than to start bringing out this idea that... Um, Job had brought this on himself. Proves that you're not justified forever for just a few good deeds. Proves you're not justified forever for just a few good deeds. We've got to be a complete person before God. Yeah. If somebody is being ignorant, 
saying these friends likely should have known better, they should have been more mature in their knowledge, and God was showing his displeasure toward them. Jesus showed um, a lot of, um, had a lot of firm words for the Pharisees and scribes because they'd been around the law all their lives, and they should have known better. All right. We'll take here just a few minutes, appreciate you being in class, and we'll take some more opportunities to look into the, uh, the different issues that come out of the book of Job. It's, it's really a wonderful study, and I appreciate uh, you being here this evening. Good morning, guys.